Greetings in Jesus' name this morning, everyone. It's a blessing to see you all here, and thank you, Stephen, for uh, willing to come and participate with us. It's a blessing to have you here. And we, as a congregation, want to send our greetings to the congregation at Woodbury. I don't know how many I would know if I would go there. And, um, I really did enjoy your message this morning. You were the things that I thought of, that I underlined. We all like to see things operating smoothly, and I, I know that's true. I, um, it's probably just some of us, but when you hear an engine that's missing and not running correctly, it's sort of, well, okay, let's, let's put it more practical here. <laughs> if you hear a song and you see, and you hear something out of tune. <laughs> um, that creates another kind of people, okay. <laughs> um, or, um, but we, we, we like to see a, a family, anything operating smoothly. And then the question was, am I the wrench in the otherwise smooth machine? <laughs> and last evening we were, as we were spending a little time singing as a family, they, um, they did something, I don't know what you call it, I had never, I don't know, you probably know more about it than I do, my children do, but we got everybody, uh, several people on the same tune, and then someone just went off just a little bit, and you could actually get a vibration going. It was really strange how that works. Um, but it wasn't no longer in unison, it was no longer the, the key, the pitch was no longer in line, but there was enough off that it, it vibrated. And um, you can ask my children. They'll do it for you sometime if you wish. <laughs> or maybe they won't. So, and then the other one, don't just tolerate each other. Work through issues. So, thank you. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Could we just stand for a word of prayer before we move ahead? Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are God and we know in heaven everything runs. It runs according to tune. It runs according to your will and purpose. And then you have said that we should pray that things be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. And Lord, as we think of your people and as we think, Lord, of how if as we as we look into your word and as we hear from heaven through your word there should be a harmony and a working together and a beauty and each one valued lord lord we 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 fail we have failed and we pray lord that you would uh, instruct us in that 
also pray, Lord, for this morning, the rest of the service here. I ask you, Lord, to speak to each one of us as we look into your word again this morning and as we look into your heart and what your word has for each one of us. I pray you would speak to us that it's your spirit that moves, it's your spirit that gives energy and power and illumination and yes, it's your spirit that transforms us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit have free course amongst us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I, after a break from in the last message where we talked about you are what you eat, we're back at Second Timothy in the in the study. And I'm going to read a portion of Second Timothy, the first chapter, to get the context. I think I'll start reading at verse 3, and I'll read to the rest of uh, through the whole chapter. So just listen to the Word of God, and let it wash us, and then we'll, we'll focus mostly on verse 8. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I might be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore... I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Wherefore, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I think for the sake of time, we will, we will stop reading. Um, Yeah, I want to read verse 16 because there's a word not ashamed in there also. <clears throat> the Lord give mercy unto the house of Anesiphorus, that's not correct, but that error, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. So this morning, the title of the message is, Don't Be Ashamed. And we'll look a little bit at review of the last verse, of uh, the last message, just a little bit there because they tie into here. So verse 8 
is, be not thou for, be not thou therefore ashamed at the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And in the ESV, that wording is, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, I'd like to put us back again into Paul's shoes, where he was at in the prison as a prisoner of Rome. Well, he was not a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ, but he was in a prison in Rome, and he was nearly done with his ministry. He had given all of himself. And the infant church had surged forward in the midst of enormous opposition. It had lots of opposition, but it had surged forward. The apostolic age was coming to an end. And what that means, the apostolic age coming to an end, is the the apostles... The revelations of God and the hands-on thing that they were moving forward, um, things were getting written down, the letters, the things were developed, and uh, the transition was beginning to take place uh, soon. Not yet, but it was coming to that place where instead of the apostles giving direction with revelation from God, you were going to get revelation and direction from the word of God. And so Paul was the apostle... Timothy was the post-apostolic age. And so there's a transition taking place. Other things were happening as well, and I mentioned that the last time. The political scene was changing because uh, while early on most of the opposition came from the Jews or from the occasional uh, heathen that didn't like what was being preached, now it was coming. From the world power, the Roman government was getting involved in a systematic persecution. And that was significant. And there were some other things happening. There were some serious heresies beginning in the church. And these heresies were making inroads. They were changing the, um, they were changing the I can't I can't think of the word right now, but the the fundamental the some of the fundamental things they were challenging and changing of the Christian faith, and they were beginning to draw disciples after them, and somebody needed to confront them. So there's Paul. He's sitting there. He's in prison. He's the gospel is not bound, but all these things are happening, and he's he's facing that. So that's so he reminds Timothy. That, I mean, all those changes that are happening, it could cause you to fear. So he tells Timothy, whatever fear you have, that doesn't come from God. Instead of fear, God gives us, what does he give us? Anybody remember? What does God give us instead of fear? Power? Anyone else? What else did he give us? In, in context, love. Sound mind, okay. 
Okay, sound mind. Power. Power. Instead of fear, God gives us power to keep on going when you feel like quitting. God gives us power to not compromise when you're tempted to compromise. Power to stay true when tempted to compromise. Power to accept suffering when there would be an easier road, but it would go out of the way. And as for this one, I just thought of Pilgrim's Progress, you know, and Pilgrim and was it Faithful? I think it was Pilgrim and Faithful that were walking on this rough, rough, rough road. And they were really getting discouraged. And it was so rough. It was so hard. And here was this fence. And you could go over the fence and there was a smooth road. You remember the story? Power to stay on the true road. God gives that to us. God gives us love. And I think we heard some of that this morning. Love to care for the souls around us. Love for those who don't love us. Love for the weak and for the unruly. Love for those who hate us. Love for those who are deceived in following the false teachers. And then God gives us a sound mind or self-control. Now, God gives these gifts. We need to fan them up, but there are the gifts. Our responsibility is to fan them up. And the self-control is like, um, like I use the illustration of a skittish horse that actually calms down and is in control again. Someone has said that self-control, the sound mind, is the ability to keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Now that encapsulates it. Now, I hope we don't all lose our heads together. I hope there's a few of us that, a few of you, let's say that way, a few of you that can keep your heads when all the rest of us are losing ours. But God gives that as a gift. So Paul, Timothy, Paul saying, don't be fearful, but fan up the gifts that God has given to you. So in light of those gifts, Paul now brings Timothy forward to the next step. Now, verse 8 has a do not, and then it has a do this. Verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. It has a, the King James says, be not thou, and then it says, but be thou. Now that's easy to understand, is it not? Um, Don't do this, but do this. Don't waste your time, but get your work done quickly. Um, don't steal, the Bible says, but work with your hands, and then you have to give. So this is about as straightforward a verse as you can expect anywhere in the scripture. Who said that the Bible is hard to understand? Well, the problem is the Bible is not hard to understand. It is hard to follow. That's usually where the difficulty comes. Just because it's easy to understand does not mean it's easy to do. And that is why we need power and love and a sound mind. And we need it given to us. And then we need to stir up those gifts to maximize the effectiveness of the gifts God gives to us.
So what is Timothy not to do? Well, actually, he's not to do two things, actually. Um, he is, number one, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And number two, nor of me his prisoner. So there's two things he's not to do. Don't be ashamed. Now, don't feel shame for something. Now, if, if we have, if we got upset and we spoke a sharp word to someone, we should feel some shame. Shame is a negative emotion. And negative emotions have their place. Um, if we were still in the Garden of Eden with our first parents and they would not have sinned, there would be no negative emotions. Think of that. There would be no anger, there would be no sadness, no jealousy, no hatred, no grief, guilt, despair, worthlessness, loneliness, all those negative emotions that come of us, we wouldn't have them. Now, they won't be in heaven either. In heaven, God's going to wipe all our tears away, and there will be no negative emotions. What will be there? Well, we'll have love, we'll have joy, we'll have peace, we have happiness, security, fulfillment, laughter, enthusiasm, delight, positive emotions in heaven. In Psalm 1611, he says, and this is talking about Jesus. Now, what is the verse before that? Um, I didn't write it down, but um, I have the, this 11 here. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy represents all the positive emotions. Fullness, full, fullness of joy. There's nothing negative there. But, Let's come back to earth. We don't live in heaven. And we do experience negative emotions. But our emotions are not to control us. But how can that be? Because I do not have full control of my emotions. We know that. We do not have full control of our emotions. And that's true. But... I like to present, and I think I might have taught this already maybe some time before, but our emotions are largely a reflection of our lives and our decisions, of who we are. We are a reflection, our emotions are a reflection of the thousands of decisions we make through life. So a thought, and you reap an act. So an act, and you read a habit. So a habit, and you reap a character. So a character, and you reap a destiny. Now, I wrote this down, and I want you to think, and then I'll explain it, okay? Our emotions are largely a reflection of the mega-narrative of our beliefs and values. 
Mega narrative means the overarching view of our beliefs and our values. We have a belief system. We have a value system. We stack in order the things that are most worth, and we stack that up. If your ego is pretty high in your value system, you will respond a certain way when somebody does something. See? And so... Our emotions reflect are largely a reflection of the mega narrative of our beliefs and values. And I could give this example, and I know I used this one somewhere already. Three people, one person tells a joke, a very dirty, a very blasphemous joke. The two people are listening. The one person just cracks out laughing and just uncontrollable. It is so funny. The punchline was so funny. And the other person sits in stunned silence and is shocked at what he heard. Both of them reacted emotionally, uncontrollably emotionally. But what was the difference? It was their value system. I want us to think about that a little bit. If you are, if you are responding, and I am responding emotionally incorrectly, it may be a good thing to take a step back and not work directly on the emotion, but check our values and our um, beliefs about something. It may be a little deeper. In fact, it likely is. So our emotions are largely a reflection of the mega narrative of our beliefs and values. So Paul, he told Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. He said in Romans 1.16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Said, I am not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Paul knew what the gospel would do, and he had no inhibitions about it. It was done and settled. I am not ashamed. End of story. You're not going to silence this man. This man could stand up in front of a university at Mars Hill, or he could go before the uh, the kings, Agrippa and the other ones, and he could go in the synagogue before the Jews. He could even stand before Peter and the other Christians. And he could, the gospel, did, when it came to the gospel, he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed. Now, I thought, I was this morning I was corrected after I have this whole message, and I don't have this in my notes, but I was corrected this morning. When I thought Paul was an unusual man, hardly anybody like him. He just was over the top and sailing. Then I became aware, as I was listening to the Bible this morning, I became aware of some verses that that Paul gave his heart. And I realized he was a real man. Let, let me just read a few verses in, uh, in Ephesians 6, verses 19 
and 20. He's talking about prayer. He's acting about uh, the, the armor and all that and praying with all prayer and supplication. In verse 19, and pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I might or that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul was asking for prayer that he may be bold. You know, I thought of Paul as a bold man. End of story, he is done. No. It was not quite natural to him, after all. Now, he was a bold person, but he recognized his own limitations. In verse 20, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that I, therein, I may speak boldly, as I ought to speak. So, so there, there we, and then I like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter th- 2 or 3. I didn't write my notes down. Yeah, chapter 2. He, he was telling his testimony how he came to the Corinthians. And he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear. <laughs> Paul was in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not enticing words of men's wisdom, but the demonstration of the spirit and power. So uh, I was corrected with my notes this morning about the Apostle Paul. But Paul did his testimony. I am not ashamed. He, he could stand here and there, but he, he had to recognize. He, he tells, we'll get to it a little bit later. By the power of God. That's what Paul depended on, and that's what we need to depend on, too. He was not ashamed. He was not ashamed anywhere, and it didn't matter if he was threatened with death. His life was already given. But Timothy faced at least the possibility of being ashamed of Jesus. If he wouldn't have been, Paul wouldn't have told him, don't be ashamed. Wasn't he as sold out as Paul? Well, his personality is different. Um, We all have different personalities. Some of us are bolder than others. Some of us are more forward than others. So, What about us? Are we ever ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? Are you ever ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? I'll put my hand up. I am. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When you're ashamed, it's mean when you are quiet when you should speak. Or when you should speak and you don't. It's real. We are ashamed, and it's not a little thing. And I'm going to, you can actually, well, I'll just read one verse in Mark. Mark 8, 38, breaking in the context of Jesus speaking here. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Uh, That 
verse is a mouthful, and this verse is one of the whosoever will verses. Whosoever therefore, it's one of those whosoever. It means everybody. It means it doesn't matter if it's that the preacher doesn't get a pass here. Let's say it that way. Whosoever. There are no favorites. Neither do the shy ones get a pass here. Whosoever. Ashamed of me and of my words. Many people love Jesus. If you say you love Jesus, you'll get accolades many places. You can get honor. You can get pat on the back when you say you love Jesus. But it says, Who shall be ashamed of me and my words? Now, if you take the words of Jesus, what he taught, it, it's a little different. His teaching on marriage, his teaching on love, his teaching about hell, on denial of self and cross-bearing. And I saw a book this morning that Neil brought along. Did Jesus really say that by uh, Gary Miller? There's a lot of things in there of that nature. Where are we not supposed to be ashamed of Jesus and his word? Uh, At church? At home? Well, where does it say? It says, in this adulterous and sinful generation. It means everywhere. Adulterous generation is those so-called Christians who are unfaithful to Jesus and his word. And a sinful generation, those who ignore or purposefully go against the word of God. Now, Jesus and Paul both knew this is an issue for God's people. We are social creatures. We like to be liked. We don't like to be not liked. We like to... Um, connect with people and be thought well well. We do not like to be thought fools or uncool or crazy or whatever words you want to put in there or outdated or stupid or and so you have social pressure and that social pressure is formidable. And that social pressure causes us to be ashamed. That's what we're talking about this morning. I trained on the truck a very nice Hispanic man. And we connected. He was friendly and we connected very quickly. You know, I, I train drivers so I'm with them all day long and they can't get away from me and I can't get away from them. So it goes both ways. And we connected on a friendship level very quickly, and then we shared about our lives. And he shared how he was divorced. But he became a Christian, and he started going to a local worship-centered-type church. And there, he was discipled how to follow the Lord. And then also, he was told there that it's okay for him to remarry. Now, now here I have a connection with him, and I... 
What, what should I? What would you tell him? Um, do you? I won't go there. It's there's where the test is. There's where it happens. If I'm ashamed, Paul says to Timothy, "Don't be ashamed of the Lord or the testimony of the Lord." What if you meet someone? And he says that we, as a country and as our Christian duty, we need to oppose all the people of a certain religion and especially not let them come here. And and all that goes in with that. What if the biblical roles of men and women are portrayed as archaic and abusive? It is viewed as controlling, and men who promote it just want power, and the women who believe it are enablers of an abusive power structure. There's people who believe that. They believe it with all their heart. To say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that we must, to go to heaven, you must repent, turn away from your sins, and to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And be born again from above. Well, to say that is it's arrogance, it's bigotry, it's hatred, it's exclusive. To expect modesty and purity in youth is repressive. It inhibits their self-expression and it warps their personality. Well, in that case, we live in a world where we shouldn't have any warped personalities hardly anymore. Doesn't kind of come out, does it? To believe in the two kingdom concept and to remain separate from participation in government activities and agendas, that's not a popular teaching. But all these things and more are things that Jesus exemplified and taught. And the uh, exhortation comes to us like it did to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Stand firm and stand true. Know what the heart of Jesus is and stand on it and proclaim it regardless of the opposition. Like Paul, not be ashamed. So that's the first part. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. And the second one, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Did you ever go tell somebody, don't be ashamed of me? (laughs) Now, some people probably were. I'm sure they were. But Paul told Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Why? Well, we must realize that Paul was not a tanned, a tanned, muscular, athletic celebrity. He wasn't. In fact, he was exactly the opposite. Instead of someone with accolades, he was he was viewed as either crazy or a failure or a uh, heretic and, and all the other th- negative things that come. He was not famous and popular alo- among the populace. Instead, he was infamous and unpopular. In in later on in verse one of Second Timothy, which I did not read for the sake of time, he mentions. Everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me. Even Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul was old 
He was worn. He had a beaten up back. If some of the assumptions are true, he may have had cystical issues, maybe with his eyes, but we don't know for sure. But he was viewed by many as a failure. But don't be ashamed of me, Timothy. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Many years ago, there was a godly brother in our congregation. And I was talking to someone not from our congregation that said, oh, does such and such go to your congregation? Um, could tell very quickly he didn't have a very high opinion of that person. Isn't he out in left field? Maybe some of you hear that about me. Well, what should I do? Should I hang my head and say, yes, I know, that brother comes. Um, but, but I didn't. I, I, actually, I actually did well there. I said, yeah, he leans a little bit. I forget exactly what I said. But um, he was not a very popular person because of his wholehearted belief and practice. And I, I defended him that time. Now, yeah, he leans a little bit, but he, he's a good brother. I forget exactly what I said. So don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me, Timothy. Why are we ashamed of God's truth? Why are we ashamed of God's people? Well, we live in a society that celebrates unrestrained self-expression. You may believe what you want to believe, but just let me believe what I want to believe. And not only do you supposed to believe what uh, let me believe, but you must you must also affirm that I have the right to believe what I want to believe, and I want your blessing on what I believe as well. And that spirit has come into the churches, into God's people. Churches are spiraling towards a contemporary stance that is accompanied by a don't judge, let people live as they please philosophy. It's not new, but it has become simply dominant in the churches in America, anyhow, in the West. I had a co-worker whose son also worked there. A father worked there and his son worked at work. And they worked, I think they worked for five years. His son was fairly young when he started there. And uh, they were Christians of some, some type. Um, I had some issues with what they believe. I did see some carnality in this young man, which was accepted by the father. And so I see that as a little bit of a problem. But at some point, the son made a decision that was beyond where his father could not go. It was a decision to actually move in with a girlfriend. And, and that father would not accept that. Now, the, 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 real, the reason I'm telling the story is not because of that, but what actually happened. The girlfriend, his girlfriend, is a daughter of a pastor. I don't know what for church it is. The pastor allowed 
her boyfriend to move into their house and live together. And they lived together for several, I don't know how long, and until they got married. And now that, um, that, that son and his wife now go to that father, pastor father, every Sunday while the relationship with his father is completely broken. Hasn't seen him since Christmas. What I wanted to bring out is um, that that the pastor accepted that kind of thing and that keeps on going and that relationship with that kind of setting is accepted. And there I am and I can catch the tears of the father who is estranged from his son, not just estranged from him, but that son that is accepted in a church situation that's totally sinful. There are costs of ownership of a home that many people do not realize when they sign the mortgage. Well, there are also costs of discipleship that many people do not realize the day they ask the Lord Jesus to come into their heart. Whatever shape or form that has taken for different people. Jesus tells us to count the costs before we sign on. And he used the illustration, uh, you have want to build a tower, make sure you know how much it's going to cost before you start building all you have done. Or you want to, uh, the war thing also is just the same illustration. Don't become a Christian unless you know what it's going to cost you. Olympic gold medal winners do not win that medal because of their natural abilities. They don't grow up healthy and then they go to the competition and win. They don't do that. Grade A students in a high-end school do not get grade A's just by their natural abilities. And you are not a Christian because of your natural ability. And uh, the, 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 re- the requirement or the necessity that we're talking about here to be a Christian is called discipleship. It was always a costly discipleship. Like that treasure in a field, there was a call to total commitment. It was interesting how Jesus regularly thinned he thinned his audience by the strength of his conditions. And so some people today have just enough of Christianity to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Now, I know that's a really a negative side, but uh, here, here's the point. To not be ashamed of Jesus in all the situations that we will face to to uh to be true to uh to not to speak when we ought to speak is a part of dying to self then the concept of dying to self is found throughout the new testament and it is basically the essence 
Now, maybe, maybe this is too strong because the essence of walking with Christ is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit will come into that heart that is surrendered and has died to self. Well, let me explain it this way. Dying to self is part of being born again. The old self dies and the new self comes to life. Not only are Christians born again when we come to salvation, but we continue dying to self as a part of our part of our process of sanctification. And as such, a dying to self is both a one-time event and a continuous process. Baptism actually demonstrates or um, expresses the commitment of the believer to die to his old sinful ways and self and to be born a new life. The action of being immersed in the water symbolizes the dying and being buried with Christ and coming out of the water pictures the resurrection with Christ. And we're all familiar with that. So, dying to self is not optional for the Christian. No one can come to Christ unless he is willing to see his old life crucified with Christ and begin to live anew in obedience to him. Now, Jesus describes in Revelations lukewarm followers. And there's many ways to describe it, but lukewarm followers could be those who have one foot in the old life and one foot in the new life, or they try to. Maybe there's other ways to describe it, too. Jesus will not have that. He'll spit them out. Being lukewarm is a symptom of being unwilling to die to self and live for Christ. Then I want to be a little more positive. What a blessing. When the battle is won and and the, the fight is over. I mean, obviously it comes again. But what a blessing that is. Self is no longer in charge. It's been dethroned and God has the throne of my heart. What a blessing that is. This house, this body is guided and empowered by the eternal Holy Spirit. The fight is gone. The struggle is gone. The unrest is gone. And there is rest and peace and assurance. And in that place, you have love and you have assurance from God. The approval that I crave in my life, you find there. The hole that we try to fill up with all kinds of stuff has been filled. The love that we've been looking for in all the wrong places has been found. Yesterday morning, we had a battle in our home. It was Satan, our 20-month-old grandchild that we're taking care of. He was unsettled, grew, uh, woke up, not happy with this, not happy with that. Just unsettled. 
So it's time to win the battle. And this was one of those sit-down sessions because there's something that worked for some children and some for others. And there was a long, long battle. I mean, I talked a long battle, hour, more than an hour. When it was over, you had a peaceful and a calm and a happy child. But was it hard to go through? It seems like you're cruel. It seems like you're horrible. It needed to be and it needed to happen. So it needs to happen in our lives. A very same thing. And that's why God disciplines us. And sometimes it's just pretty tough. Don't try to become a Christian unless you understand and are willing to die to your old self. And we, as Christians, and I'm thinking now we talked about the, the least and we talked about the tops and we talked about different structures and orders and we're all part of the, part of the body. For us, who generally people look up to, whether it's fathers or mothers or leaders or whatever it is, we will do, we do Christ an enormous disservice if we live a selfish or a worldly or a lukewarm life. We distort the gospel in front of our children and our neighbors if we do not live such a life. If we, like Satan, take charge of our lives and decide what we want to do and have nothing higher in our lives than our own interests and our own possessions and our own pleasures and our own pursuits, then we are not a testimony for Christ. And that dovetails very well into the positive exhortation by Paul. Be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And the ESV says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Suffering and affliction. Paul knew what that was. And we could read there in Second Corinthians where we get that list where he was beaten with rods and his stripes 30, 40 times minus one. He was shipwrecked. He was without food. He was without clothing. He was imprisoned and he had a long list. He knew what suffering was. Cold and hungry. Then he said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He also said that it's with much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom. So he tells Timothy, be ready to suffer for the gospel's sake. What does he say? Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Expect afflictions. Plan on it. Embrace it. You have become a joyful and willing follower of the king of the universe. And we live in enemy territory, so we are going to have opposition. Suffering is just part of the journey. Imagine someone deciding they're going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And they're going to go from one end to the other. They're going to start at Georgia and they're going to go to Maine. And imagine their thought process is, well, I hope I don't get any sore muscles. I hope it doesn't rain for six months. 
I hope it's either flat or mostly downhill. And, okay, plan on it. You're going to get sore muscles. You're going to have really rocky uphill trails. And it's going to rain, and it might even snow. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I sure hope there's restaurants along the way, and there's a place, a motel to sleep every night. You're not, you're not living in the real world. No, if you decide to hike the trail from one to the other, you are going to accept a lot of hardship and trouble. And that's just the normal stuff. You know there's some of these things are a given. And then there's who knows what can happen on the way. You might get that late season snowstorm or you might get a twisted angle or you might get a snake bite and all, anything can happen on there. So, yes. If you follow Jesus in his step the whole way to the end, then expect trouble and suffering. Expect it. Don't be surprised. In fact, if you don't have any, you should maybe be surprised and maybe wonder. Expect suffering and denial. And expect trouble and suffering and even betrayal. I lead, I, I, I got somewhere in here my paper. Here it is. I went to the martyr's mirror and I wondered what actually happened to Timothy. <laughs> Paul told him to be a Timothy. So uh, here's an account and I'll just read the last part of this account of Timothy. It ended his life. And he talks a little bit about him and talks about his ministry. He was an upright evangelical gospel, uh, evangelical preacher, until it pleased God to let him finish his course, not by a common death, but by martyrdom, so that he, with his spiritual father, Paul, had steadfastly preceded him, and especially with his Lord Jesus Christ, who had gone through the conflict many years before, might enjoy the unfading crown of honor in the life of bliss. Thus it happened afterward, according to history, that after having been bishop at Ephesus, for 15 years, he was there stoned to death by the heathen whose idolatry he had reproved. Timothy was faithful. He was not ashamed of Jesus and his word. And he told the heathen that. And then he got suffering. John the Baptist, same thing. Reproved Herod about his unlawful marriage. Timothy followed Paul's directive. He did share the suffering of the gospel. So, how about you and me this morning? What does being partakers of the afflictions of the gospel look like? For us today, in 2018, in the United States of America. Will we face stoning or beheading for speaking the truth? None of us that I know of has. But we will suffer in some ways if, if it's clear what our position is. I know a story in my youth where there was a dedicated young man that was known 
to be, well, you could say he's known to be a radical. He was a sold-out Christian in a youth group that was not. So here comes this young man into a gathering one time, and he just come in the door, and very quickly, some were on him. Hey, such and such is here, and openly began to mock him. And he didn't argue back, didn't fight back. He just bowed his head and he said, hey, Archie's praying. That red hair, you know, that comic, that, uh, comic character. His position was well known that he faced persecution just because his position was known. Is our position known? Do people know what we believe and like it or not like it? Other times, persecution comes when we rebuke or when we disagree with someone else's sinful actions or beliefs. We do not need to be abrasive or harsh. No, but we need to be clear and we need to be firm. That's all that I think Probably uh, John the Baptist did. He made it clear. It's not lawful for you to have her. It's clear. You know, I'm convicted even as I share this. Because we like to be liked. (laughs) This is not. This is not. I'm not telling you this because I haven't mastered or because I like it. I'm teaching the word of God. That's what we're here. We want God's heart and will for each one of us. And that's why I'm here. To teach the word of God. <clears throat> Jesus said clearly. As I said, this is in context that we like to be liked. He said in Luke six twenty six, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Whoa, you want a woe pronounced on you? Have everybody speak well of you. Well, people can speak well of us for certain things. But if everybody speaks well of you, or so did they, their fathers to the false prophets. Then he said in Luke 6.22, a few verses before, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. So if somebody hates you, you are blessed. Your flesh is you hate you for the right reason. And when they separate you from their company, when you get kicked out and you're blessed and shall reproach you and shall cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, if they, if they um, dishonor you and completely spew completely false things about you all over Facebook, you are blessed. That's what it is in modern times. For the Son of Man's sake. Paul was not ashamed. He was a teacher and a preacher. And in verse in verse um, Timothy in verse second Timothy chapter one, verse twelve, he says he was a preacher and a teacher and an apostle for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, 
I am not ashamed. And Paul, why could they, why are you not ashamed? Well, we know already he said, because the, the gospel is the power of God. I know what the gospel does. Therefore, I know what it does and where it comes from. I'm not ashamed. But here's another reason. In chapter 1 and verse 12, you maybe you're still in Second Timothy, you can look at it. But it's a very familiar verse. Why are you not ashamed, Paul? For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Like the people in Hebrews chapter 11, of yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, Paul lived by faith. He was headed for Maine on this Appalachian Trail. And he was, he had a goal in mind. He knew he was going to get there. He knew God was going to be with him. It's a long trail, and whatever happens in that trail is just incidental. It's just incidental. Obstacles are to be overcome, but we're going on. And going to be successful, because he said, I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep me what I've committed to him, which is his whole life, and that day. The I will fight a good fight will someday change to what Paul said, I have fought a good fight. So this morning for us, I will fight a good fight. That's where we're at. At some point, we then can say, I have fought a good fight. But we can't say, I have fought a good fight if we don't have, I will fight a good fight now. I will fight a good fight. That is my commitment to my Lord. By the power of God. Now we're going to go back to the first message. We need each other in this. I mean, I, I need the commitment and only I can make my own commitment. And only you can make your own commitment. But then we need to interact with each other with that commitment. Will you assist me and I assist you? Do not be ashamed of the Lord, nor of his teaching, nor of his people who are out on the front lines. Rather, share in their suffering, in their humiliation, in their poverty, in their disgrace. And do it with the strength God gives us as we stir up the gifts he has given to us. Could we just kneel for prayer here at the end, please? So, Lord, we bow before you on our knees and our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for giving us of yourself. You are the best example that there is, Lord. You have given of yourself for the purpose of your Father and for the purpose of your church, and for the salvation of souls. And you were a good example, and you were not ashamed. And you, Lord, uh, always did what your Father wanted you to do. So, Lord, as we, as we bow before your presence, Lord, we ask you to empower us, each one of us. There's none of us who are strong on our own, Lord. We all need your power. We all need your grace. 
And we all need the commitment to follow you with all of our hearts. I pray for each one of us, Lord. I pray, Lord, you would make us not to be ashamed, and but be willing partakers of the afflictions and the sufferings of the gospel, the one that you bring to us, and that we are faithful to you. We thank you, Lord. We have much to look forward to. In Jesus' name, amen.